morning, church. It is good to be with you today. Um, If you would, open up your Bibles to the book of Malachi. Uh, If you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you, go ahead and open to page 753. We are tying up our series in the book of the Twelve, also known as the Minor Prophets. Page 753, book of Malachi, if I can get there. Would you pray before we get into this morning with me? Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to us. Lord, your... um, Your word is littered with examples of you breaking chains, as we just sang about. Lord, the chain that we um, tie ourselves to, which is the chain of sin, Lord. We are so prone to wander, so prone to self-preserve, so prone to take our own way. And yet, Lord, you consistently call us back to the only way, which is through you. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit, which helps us understand your word. We pray that it would encourage us, that it would convict us, and ultimately we would be made more like Jesus because of it. We pray this in his name. Amen. So uh, my name's Chris, and I have a family. That's my wife named Wendy, and our son, who's 11 months old, named Jacob. And I'm not here to tell you about my family, but what I am here to tell you about is something we've been consistently saying around our house recently which is, as many young parents could attest to, no. Um, And it comes in different fashions. We don't want to be the no parents always telling him he can't do this or he can't do that. I'd rather be the opposite, actually. But um, Jacob, as the picture points out, is in the habit of putting things in his mouth nowadays as he's teething. Um, You see a couple nods. But uh, there we were really happy with what he was putting in his mouth. He was putting in a banana chew toy and he was on our first flight up to visit my parents up at the Bay Area, and it, and it soothed them, so he didn't cry on the plane, so we weren't that family. <laughs> but what began with a banana chew toy quickly evolved, or actually already evolved before this, into other things. So here's a picture of Jacob in, in May picking up his name tag made of paper and plastic. Um, and yeah, not the biggest deal in the world. It's not the sand or the dirt he was putting in his mouth on Thursday and Friday. But you get the point. It moved from banana toy to paper. Um, Quickly evolved into other things that he's putting in his mouth. And so the no is getting a little bit more quick and a little bit more uh, intense. And uh, that's a before and after. He looked at me as he at the dinner table, had his foot in his mouth. I said, no, don't do it. And sure enough, he just stuck it in his mouth. Not the worst thing. But it's moved from his feet to other people. As he's begun to put other people in his mouth, and any of our family would tell you this, he likes to smother people with his mouth. So like I said, I'm not here to tell you about my family. I'm just making this use of uh, me consistently and repeatedly saying no something we've been hearing for the last 11 or so weeks as we've been going through the book of the 12. If you think about, in summary, what we've been listening to since about June, it's been the same message. 
all 12 minor prophets, the book of the 12, have essentially pointed back to the same message from God, which is that they have strayed from him. In Deuteronomy and elsewhere, in the law that was given by Moses, God had a series of different things he wanted their relationship to look like. It was, if you did this, then this would happen. Um, If you don't do this, then, well, there's consequences to that. So it's the same message we've been hearing. The minor prophets all didn't come at once. They came over a period of time, a couple of centuries. But they all had the same message. It was the how and the what of Israelite sin that looked different. But it was always the same why. So each prophet brought the same message, but they had to figure out how God's law rebuked, convicted, encouraged, commanded God's people in their time. And the same thing is true for us, is like someone said earlier, we are forgetful people. The why never changes. We have hearts that are, tend to stray from God, but the how and might look different depending on whether you're listening to Malachi's message or you're sitting here listening today. So as we dive into the last of the 12 books that we've been studying, I put Jonah in parentheses simply because we didn't study it this summer, but if you go back, you can listen to the series that we did last summer just on Jonah. But for the last, really, 11 weeks, including this one, we've heard the same message. Malachi is going to deliver the same thing, so I might as well just end it right here. I'm not going to do that. But Malachi essentially... We don't know a ton about him. His name means messenger. He wrote as the last minor prophet, the last voice of the Old Testament. So here's a a diagram we've looked at a couple times this summer, where you've got all the different prophets listed on the two right-hand columns, and then you've got the time frame on the left. So God sent some prophets to Israel and Judah, and he sent them during different times. So at the very bottom, you see Malachi. So he ha- he's coming in the line of a lot of others. But he's about four or 500 years before Christ. And he's about 100 years after Israel had moved back into the promised land, after being exiled. And Israel at this time is not an independent nation. They're really just a province that reports to a much bigger kingdom, Persia. Okay, so that's kind of the, the when of Malachi and the, and the who. Um, the, it's not really so much, you don't need to know a ton about Malachi, but what you really need to understand is who was Malachi writing to? Who were the people that Malachi was saying, hey, don't you get this? Don't you remember what God had said to us? That's what you need to know about as we get into this morning's text. So I think it's easy to understand them really in three ways. It's not Jacob, I hope. So, uh, no, first, you need to understand, three things you need to understand about them. The state of the nation. Politically, politically, religiously, and socioeconomically. Big words. Politically. If you were going to understand Israel in one word, politically, it would be that they were skeptical. Israel was skeptical about their political future. Like I said, they were a small, fledgling province in a much bigger Persian kingdom. They had been told repeatedly that God would reinstate the kingdom that he had first created under King David about five or six hundred years before Malachi. 
And so they were waiting with anticipation. When are we finally going to not be a province? We can just be our own nation like it was in the good old days. But Persia had absolute control over the region. So the hopes of ever becoming an independent nation were dimming and dimming. And so the people politically were very skeptical. Religiously, if you're going to understand the people of Israel at the time, you need to know that in one word, they were cynical. They were cynical about their places of worship and their leaders of worship. So let me draw another slide that we've used often this summer. This is a picture of Solomon's temple. This was the first temple that Israel was allowed to construct for, to worship their God in. It wasn't built during Malachi's day, as you can tell. It was built about a thousand years before Christ came, about 500 years before Malachi was writing. For perspective, as Rick pointed out last week, there's a person on the bottom. You can see how big this temple is. Okay, now just imagine you're listening to Malachi. Okay, this was not the temple they were worshiping in. This temple had been wiped out. It was destroyed. Israel was taken into captivity, into exile. And then they'd finally returned. They rebuilt the temple. They were super excited about it. But honestly, guys, the temple was like the front porch to the much bigger temple. So you had a group of people that are described in Ezra chapter 3 verse 12 as essentially they were, these were the older priests who knew about the bigger temple but were kind of around as the small temple was being built. And they were just, they actually cried when they saw this being built. They, weren't, they were not thrilled about the place of worship. So the place of worship wasn't awe-inspiring. It didn't necessarily lead everyone to worship of God. But if that wasn't enough, their leaders were essentially a bunch of power brokers, just interested in their position in society, not really interested in leading God's people to worship, as the Levites had been instructed to do. And so if you need to understand religiously the state of the nation, they're very, very cynical about their faith. Their leaders and their place of worship hadn't led them to an ever-shrinking view of God. And we see that playing out when Malachi points it out. The last and final thing that you need to know before we actually read Malachi's writing is where Israel stood from a socioeconomic standpoint. In other words, what was their economic situation and what were their social relationships like? From an economic standpoint, they were not where they had expected to be. They had been told that when they entered into the promised land, again from the exile, that they would be blessed and they had a certain expectation keyword expectation. It wasn't God telling them what it was going to look like, but they had an expectation from God's promise about what it would look like, and it hadn't panned out. And in that, you see people, instead of being generous with what God had entrusted to them economically, you see them begin to self-preserve, to oppress people, employers, oppressing employees, uh, but it fractured relationships too. And so one of the biggest things that Malachi hits the people on is for divorce. Because not only are they at, where, they're not where they expect to be materially, their relationships are not meeting their expectations. So they're discontent from a socioeconomic standpoint. Why am I telling you all this? It's because this is the audience that Malachi is writing to. In a word, they are what I would call disillusioned. Disillusioned, as defined in the dictionary, is disappointed in someone or something discovered to be less good than one had believed. 
So you should be starting to get the picture. They had a certain expectation because of some of the other prophets about where they would be, but they had misinterpreted those expectations. They had looked at their circumstances, said, I'm not where I should be or where I want to be, and because of that, I'm going to take my eyes off of God. I'm going to rob him. I can't give him my best. And I'm also, it's going to affect my horizontal relationships, and I can't give each other, I can't give my neighbor, my spouse, my employees the best either. So what you get is a group of people who are extremely apathetic in their faith. Circumstances have given way to disillusionment. That disillusionment has led to apathy, which translates as half-hearted faith. These people thought they had justification for the sins that Malachi is pointing out. And instead of during a time where God's not appearing to meet your expectations, instead of clinging on to him, they run away from him. And Malachi is trying to get them back into the fold and say, hey, can't you remember what God said? Can't you remember how faithful he has been to our people? Now, the struggle for me as I was looking at this was, well, gosh, we don't bring in polluted offerings. We don't bring in goats that are sick and sheep. I didn't see anyone walking in with sheep that were bleeding this morning. Like, it doesn't really apply to us. But we know God's word is living and active. And then I started to think, we're really all not, that, all not, not all that different from the Israelites. Trust is in short supply for us today. Running through the same rubric, politically, we are extremely skeptical of our political state as a nation. We lend trust in four-year increments, waiting to see who's in office to decide whether or not I can trust who's there. We've never been more skeptical of those in power. Religiously, we're cynical, as like the leaders of the Levites, of the Israelites, who were complicit in the sin of the people that they were shepherding, the church has been fraught with abuse of leadership over the last couple decades. But it's not just at the level of leadership. It flows over into everyday homes that are walking into church pews. Families broken apart, just like they were being broken apart in Israel's day. In a lot of ways, we're not that dissimilar from the people we're studying this morning. And yeah, while we might not be, although I won't ignore it, we probably aren't all considering divorce if we're married. The question is not on the surface, are we outwardly disobeying God? It's really a posture of our heart that Malachi is getting at. Because the reality is our life is going to be filled with all kinds of expectations that will not be met desires that will, left, that will be left unmet as well. And so in a lot of ways, we're going to struggle the same ways if we're not already now, currently, in the same way Malachi's people were. So if you're going to understand the book of Malachi, there's four chapters. We're going to work from left to right in those four chapters. But it's three things. Malachi's message to the disillusioned people and to us today is one of remembrance. He remembers God's faithfulness. And in remembering God's faithfulness, he remembers two things. That God has rebuke for disobedience, but he doesn't just leave us at exposing our sin, he also leans in and gives us a promise, multiple promises. If you were gonna break down Malachi's message even further, it really works through six things. I call them disputes. Scholars call them oracles, I think. 
The disputes basically work like this, as Malachi goes from left to right in the book. Uh, God makes a statement, usually in the form of a rhetorical question about the state of Israel, the nation, like trying to capture the essence of their disobedience and confronting them. So that's, God makes a point, Israel responds to the point, kind of defending themselves, and then God has the final word. And, and Malachi works through six of those. Three are, promise, or three are rebukes and three are promises. So we're gonna kind of work just as Malachi lays it out for us. So open up to page 753 if you're not there already in the Pew Bibles. Chapter one, starting in verse two, Malachi starts and he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Okay, Malachi is making um, a little bit of an abstract reference here. Uh, It's essentially he's saying, hey, 1,500 years ago, before Malachi was writing, uh, God made a promise to the father of the nation of Israel, Abraham, and Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac was married to a woman named Rebecca, and God had made this promise to Rebecca. The Lord said to Rebecca, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the, other, and the older will serve the younger. Okay. So Rebecca had twins. Their names were Jacob and Esau. How does that relate to Edom and Israel? Malachi is basically trying to point out that God had said he was going to be faithful to a specific group of people. And those people were Jacob's descendants, the younger of the two twins from Rebecca. And over the course of 1,500 years now, they have gotten to see that play out right in front of them as God has shown his faithfulness to his people. He's delivered on his promise. Malachi starts with his writing here for two very fundamental reasons that we need to understand. He's making this abstract reference to this promise that God made long ago because he's trying to get the people to understand God is faithful. He can be trusted. Why are you disillusioned? Why are you apathetic? The first reason that Malachi starts here is because he's about to lean into the people. He's going to rail on them for things that they're doing wrong. And so the first reason Malachi starts there is because Malachi wants God's people to remember that God's discipline only comes to those that he loves. God's discipline comes to those that he loves. So he wants to start from right right out the gate. He doesn't notice. This is is actually a good framework for us when we go to try to rebuke sin in someone else's life or point out someone else is doing something wrong. It's He starts with, hey, remember, I'm doing this because God loves you. I'm about to lean into you. I'm about to scold you because I love you. That's the first reason Malachi starts with remembrance. The second reason, perhaps the more important reason, is because I think Malachi and the minor prophets in general, on the surface, could be mistakenly read for, oh, I guess I just need to get in line. I just need to obey. I need to go back to Deuteronomy and just figure out what does God want me to do and stop doing the things 
that are getting my hand slapped. But is that what God wants? Does he want just rote obedience that we don't think about? No. The second reason Malachi begins with a remembrance of God's love and his faithfulness for his people is because obedience to God's commands should always come from a grateful heart. Obedience to God's command should always come from a place of gratitude, not obligation. But that was the mistake that, in a lot of ways, the people were making. What does God want with us? Even now, this side of Jesus, right? Not on the front side like Malachi was writing. God has always wanted a relationship with his people. The only reason he gave them the law was because he wanted them to understand how the relationship was going to work out. But he didn't want them to take the commands given in his law and let that be the substitute for just a relationship with his people. Malachi is writing what God is communicating to his people, which is that he wants joyful surrender, not obligation. So he starts there. To the extent that we skip on right to the rebuke, I think we miss a lot of what Malachi is writing to them and us today. But the majority of his book is focused on correcting. And so the first rebuke that Malachi begins to make in chapter 1 starts in verse 6. So let's read. Starting in verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Translation? Israel was supposed to be offering the first and the best. But what were they doing? They were offering the worst and the last. In the law that Moses had given the people of God, you can write down Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 and 10, it was very clear what sacrifices were supposed to look like. It was a regular practice for the people of Israel to offer sacrifices to their God. And Leviticus spelled in large part, what that was supposed to look like. It speaks to the frequency. They were supposed to do it in the mornings and the night. They were supposed to do an extra one on the Sabbath. They were supposed to give an extra one on the festivals and those sorts of celebration days. And then they were welcome to give free will offerings anytime they wanted to. Malachi is not pointing, pointing out the frequencies necessarily wrong here. He's talking about the quality of their sacrifice, which is a little bit difficult for us to grasp Right? Because, like I said, we don't bring goats and sheep into the service and put them here on the stage. That would be weird. But what were they doing? Say they had a hundred sheep or a hundred goats. The guy that had to bring his offering in asked his manager, hey, what's the sick one? Give me the sick one because we want to keep the good ones for ourselves. What were they doing? They were giving the worst and the last to God. And Malachi's confronting them for that. He's attacking the priests here, like you saw, but he hits the general population in chapter 3. So you know that this was common practice. It wasn't just the elites of the, of, uh, of the temple doing this. 
So why does he attack him here? Is it just to, hey, get in line and do this because God told you to? No. It says in, in verse 10, chapter 1, he says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that they might not, you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. He says, he goes so far as to say, I don't even want these sacrifices. This is the kind of stuff you're going to bring me. Someone should just close the door, Malachi says sarcastically. The phrase, my name, is mentioned five times in chapter one. God's concerned with my name. How are your offerings affecting my name? God's making a connection between his glory as their God, or supposed God, and what they're actually doing functionally. And there's a disconnect there because their sacrifices were an indication of where their heart was. This is where the modern application for us begins. This could be applied a million different ways. What are the things that God entrusts to us, right? Gifts, time, resources, relationships, influence, abilities, and of course, money. The modern day offering is money. Money, like Malachi points out here, is an indication of the Israelites' heart, but it is an indication of our heart too. It's not the only one, but it is one. Money does two things. It reveals man's heart. It's an indication of what we prioritize, what we consider to be important. You only have to look two places to see what's important to a man or a woman. You look at their calendar and you look at their checkbook. Follow where is their time being spent and how is their money being spent. It's an indicator of what's important to them. And for Israel, it was indicating that God wasn't very important. But that's not just it. I think Malachi is hitting at something even greater that Jesus would expound upon, which is that money's not just an indicator of what we believe about our God and how much trust we have in him, enough to give some to him. I think it also, money is a, is a way into our hearts. Jesus built upon this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. I'm paraphrasing, but he says to his followers, I want you to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Malachi is making this sort of point to the Israelites. He's saying, look, you're not giving God your first and your best of your offerings. And that's telling me where your heart's at. But because you are not giving God your first and your best, because you think you can justify not giving your best, you're missing out on this. You're not going to be actively involved. You're not going to be interested in what God is doing if you're not giving him your best. Let me drive this home with a modern day example. What do the founders and founders of companies do to compensate their employees oftentimes nowadays? They compensate in the form of stock options. What do stock options do? They allow employees to purchase stock at a discounted rate so that their compensation is now tied to the performance of their company. So they become what financial ease would say is vested interests in what's going on with the company. Malachi is driving home the same point. To the extent that I'm giving the last fruits, not the first fruits, and not, or not giving at all, then I'm, I really am going to be apathetic. I'm going to be disillusioned. I'm not going to be interested in what God's doing, and I'm not going to put my money where my mouth is. 
So contrast that picture with the picture of giving that we see 500 years previously in King David. King David was told by God that because he was a man of war, he could not give, or he could not build the temple. It would have to be his son Solomon. But that didn't exclude David from wanting to give. And so David in 1 Chronicles 29 said, or he didn't say, but his people said in rejoicing, uh, then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly for with a whole heart they offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly and David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel. Let's skip down to the end of that passage and read, both riches and honor come from you, but who am I and what is in what is, in my peop- what is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly? See, the people of Malachi's day, they didn't want to give because they weren't at a place where they thought they could give, so they robbed God. But do you realize they robbed out themselves of the opportunity to participate what God was doing? And that is the mentality that God wants us to give in. Whether it's our money or it's just to use our relationships in a certain way or our influence or our time, David is a stark contrast to the people of Malachi's day, which weren't giving out of gratefulness. It was an expectation that, oh, well, I'll give if, if I can afford to give, if I can just give him my sick sheep. Malachi's first rebuke is clear. It's on offerings. And the second is just as clear in chapter two. Starting in verse one, he moves from rebuking their offerings to the leaders in the church, specifically the priests. So in verse one of chapter two, it says, and now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Skipping down to verse five, Malachi is saying what their relationship should have looked like with the Lord, the Levites. He says, my covenant with him, the Levites, was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And Here's the key turning point. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Malachi takes his argument from rebuking the people for giving bad offerings, polluted offerings, he calls them, and he moves it to the people that are leading Israel in worship. This is a group of leaders in the, what we would call the church nowadays that were not shepherding God's people. They were misleading them. They were complicit. They were participating in the sins that were wandering God's people away from him instead of towards him. God had given the Levites a specific role in, in society. It was that they were to order worship, that they were to be examples. Ultimately, the responsibility of worship was left between God and man, 
but God had inserted priests that would mediate in between man and God. The Levites had a specific role, a specific responsibility in the body of God's people that they were failing to act. Malachi's hitting them because they're actually committing sins of what we call commission. They were committing sins, but they were actually also negligent. They were doing sins of omission. They were not participating in certain things they should have been doing. What Malachi's message to the priests and his message to us today communicates is that it teaches us that worship matters. And fundamentally, we are either leading or misleading people towards worship of God. See, a strict reading of the text on the surface might just say, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not a priest at our church, I'm not a pastor, I'm not, I'm not even an elder, and I'm probably not, I might not even be a deacon. It's their job. But we know that the Bible didn't end with just giving priests a job. It had, in the New Testament, Paul would spell out the fact that everyone in the church has a role and a responsibility. Everyone is part of the much greater body of which Christ is the head. We all have roles and responsibilities, and all of us have the ability to either lead or mislead people towards God, whether we are consciously doing it or unconsciously doing it. So, how does it like get down to the, the, the weeds? Like, how does this actually apply? Well, just think, for example, let's say in this case, an elder decides that he's going to be indifferent to the sins that he's seeing people commit right in front of him in his congregation. To the extent that that elder decides to be indifferent to that sin, like the, Israel, the Levites were indifferent, maybe, and complicit to the sin of their people, let's say this is a sin, wrecking a family, that there's secrets going on in something, and something's playing out, and it's horrible, well, to the extent that that elder doesn't want to get involved, he's indifferent to the cost, who's going to pay the price? The elder doesn't pay a price, but the people of God do, that family does. That's an extreme example. Let's go with a more modern, every day. I'm a dad. I just became a dad 11 months ago. Wendy and I are parents. So are a lot of you in this room. What if we neglect our responsibility, our role, to be the primary people who bring Jacob to God's word, to train him up in a godly way. See, I think we all nod our heads and say, yeah, I get it, I have a role and responsibility. But functionally, this is how it can work. Well, Jacob, you know, Wendy and I, we bring Jacob to church. He's in Sunday school, he was there the first hour. We, even, we might even bring him to Awanas on Wednesday night. We even put our money where our mouth is and we send our kid to private school. We pay for tuition because we care about him being godly person. And we think like that, but functionally, sometimes we delegate that responsibility of raising our kids in a godly fashion to other people. But what does God's word say? What's Malachi pointing them back to? Each of us has a role and responsibility. And so we might not be outwardly disobeying God when we neglect our responsibilities, intentionally misleading people, but in a lot of ways, our lives might be living this out a lot more than we realize. The key is not, oh, well, just need to get, like, it's, again, it's not obedience. It's not, oh, I need to bring my kid to church. I need to do morning devotions, day and, like, day and night. It's a lifestyle. How does, how does Malachi characterize the, the lifestyle of the priest that he's rebuking? Look in verse five, 5 through 7. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. True instructions when his mouth 
and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord. How would you characterize how Malachi is characterizing what the Levites were supposed to look like in their relationship with the Lord? It wasn't something that was just confined to the temple. Only on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday nights, it was a lifestyle. The Levites and we are meant to be living our faith out daily. Malachi didn't come up with this. He's pointing him back to Deuteronomy. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, it had specific instructions. Verses 6 through 7 talked about what parents were supposed to be doing in their role and responsibility of raising kids up, that the word of the Lord was to be on their mouths. It was to be a part of their everyday conversation when they got up, when they walked, and when they lied down. Are you getting the picture? Each of us has a role and responsibility, but to the extent that we ignore that, which in most, for most of us is not going to be outwardly disobedience. It's just going to be indifference to the cause. Others are suffering, and most importantly, God is not accomplishing through you what he intended to accomplish when he gave you that role and responsibility. The question for us in this rebuke is, what am I missing out on, and who is suffering because of it? Now, that's really extreme language, because the reality is no one's really suffering in the short term, but over the course of a life, this can have all kinds of implications. Malachi continues in his rebuke of the sins that he's seeing before the people, and he moves from offerings to roles and responsibilities onto a specific trend that he was seeing and we see in our own society, which is that people were divorcing each other and they were remarrying in pursuit of other spouses. Chapter 2, starting in verse 10, he says, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. What was happening? Israelite men being disillusioned about where they were politically and religiously and socioeconomically, were also discontent, not with their own greater situation, but even in the, the very weeds of their life and their marriages. My spouse isn't giving me what I want. It's not meeting my expectations that I had when we married. And so this is playing out 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, or even longer. And what's the solution that man is finding in his own disillusionment? He's twisting something that was intended to show the love and self selflessness, of selflessness of God, and he's turning it into something to meet his own needs. And in this case, it's working itself out in the form of divorce. It's just one of the thousand different iterations that disillusionment leads to disobedience. So Malachi's hitting on this specific sin. It goes much deeper in that, but let's just camp out on this one for a minute. What did God create marriage to be? Let's go where he created it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Okay, so kind of know the story. Adam created. He was alone. God decided to send in Eve because he was alone and it wasn't good. He needed a helper. Okay. 
Thousands of years later, Paul's writing about marriage. He's looking at it from the angle of God's creating it. And he says, in defining the roles in chapter 5, verse 25, he says specifically to the husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He would go on to say that wives, too, have a role, and a big part of that role is submitting to their husband, in other words, fully trusting him. Okay, two commonly sections of scripture on marriage. The heart of its creation, and Paul expounding upon its creation in Ephesians, I think is selflessness. From the very start, the roles of marriage, the the specific husband and wife roles was going, to be, was going to be a disposition of selflessness. It was going to be defined by how selfless they were towards one another. For the husband, it was going to be sacrificing to love his wife. And for the wife, it was going to be fully trusting him, to helping him, being his companion. But what had Malachi's people been doing? Their marriage had no idea or concept of God's word, which they had. They had Genesis. They didn't have Ephesians yet, but they had Genesis. They knew God's design was for us to work together, for me to die to myself to help the other. But the men in this society had twisted the marriage so that they were now asking a question of what am I getting out of this rather than what am I giving towards it? And we are all in danger of that same thing. Whether or not you're contemplating divorce or you just got married yesterday and you couldn't be any happier. Doesn't We never plan to give a divorce when we get married. We never plan to break up relationships, right? It doesn't happen overnight. But over the course of a long period of time, in a marriage, we can turn it towards ourselves. And something that God instituted to be about the other becomes about me. The Young Marrieds group in our church is going through a book written by Gary Thomas. And that book starts with this premise. What if God's primary intent for my marriage is not to make me happy, but to make me holy, to make me more like Christ. Like Paul says in Ephesians 5, to love my, my wife so much so that it would exemplify what Christ did for the church. And that kind of love is set apart. That love is holy. This applies to any relationship, whether or not you're married. The reality is that as a church, God showed us what it was supposed to look like and he sent, his Jesus, he sent Jesus to help us see that. But Malachi is trying to help this specific group of people who are so apathetic about their situation, so disillusioned, their expectations hadn't been met in all kinds of ways, including their marriages, and he's just trying to call them back to a place of faithfulness by pointing them towards God's faithfulness. The question for us when we look at a rebuke like this is, Am I giving my best to my spouse? If you're not married, the same thing, you can ask yourself the same question. Am I not giving my best to others? Is every relationship more about what I can get out of it or is it about what can I give to this? Malachi's book, thankfully, doesn't end in rebuke. He points forward in the way that God always does towards what God's going to do in spite of our sin, in spite of the ways that we have walked away from him. So I'm not going to go into each of these. You could do a whole sermon series on every single rebuke and every single promise, but I will sort of synthesize it into God promising three things. 
he promises judgment. In verses, or chapter two, the end of it, till the beginning of chapter three, he basically confronts this concept that was going around Israel, where Israel was saying, look at all these ungodly nations and ungodly people who aren't even following you half-heartedly like we are. They're doing better than we are. And God just says, you have such a shallow view of what my judgment looks like. So I am going to come back. I am going to judge, but it's not going to be in your timing and it's not going to be in your way because I'm your God. So he promises judgment. He says he's going to send a messenger, which he'll come back to in chapter four and we'll end at. But he promises judgment for sure. But he doesn't just promise judgment. He invites in chapter three, six through 12, he invites his people to test him. It's one of the only places in scripture that God invites us to test him in something. So looking at, pay, uh, looking at chapter three, starting in verse eight, remember when I said he was gonna talk about the polluted offerings, he was gonna move from the priest doing it to the general population kind of robbing God of their giving? He hits him back here. Will, and starting in verse eight, will man rob God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Here's the test. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God's inviting them to now bring him their first and, his, and their best. Not because God wants something from them, not because God wants to rob them of something, but because God wants something for them. Malachi is trying to communicate that these people are missing out on blessing. And he doesn't spell out what that blessing necessarily looks like and we don't know what that looks like either. We don't know if it's gonna be on this side of heaven. But I'll tell you, one of the blessings they could have experienced is just the freedom from giving it up. Right? If they decided to test God in this way, how much would they be less focused on their wealth and more focused on God, which is where God ultimately wanted them to be? God promises judgment. He promises blessing for his people. And lastly, he promises salvation. At the sort of towards the end of chapter three, starting in verse 13, God confronts him with the sixth and final dispute. He says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking in, as in a morning before the Lord of the hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put, to, put God to the test and they escape. See, what Malachi's dealing with is a group of people who were so cynical about their God that they were beginning to ask questions like, okay, God, if I do bless you, I do finally, I accept your invitation to test you. What am I gonna get out of it? What, what, what kind of, tran- this is a transaction now. It's not a relationship. This is a business relationship of I'm gonna pay you this. What are you gonna get me? What am I gonna get out of it? Which is why Malachi is from the beginning of his writing in chapter one saying, you guys have a misunderstanding about who your God is. You don't understand what he wrote to you. You're not following it. And even if you did follow it, you wouldn't have the right understanding to actually live it out. 
Malachi's promising him all these things, not because he wants to just leave them in the dust and tell them they're a horrible group of people, but because he wants them to understand how faithful their God is. And ultimately, he wants them to understand what they're missing out on, which is a loving, trustworthy, faithful relationship with the God who had been relentlessly pursuing their people. And yet these people are asking the silliest of questions, the same kind of questions we ask when our expectations aren't met. See, I don't know your individual situations. I know some of you. But we all have expectations. We all have goals. We all have desires about where we think our life should be. And while we might be nice and not say that we think of those things as idols, they slowly and very subtly become idols in our life that we attach to. And like the Israelites, when those things don't pan out as we expected it, whether it's our finances, your job, your marriage, your health. Maybe you expected your life to look this way and now it's not going that way. Instead of your circumstances now dictating your view of God and your faith in him, Malachi is pointing to us and them, not to their view, which would have said my circumstances now or my theology about God, he wants to change it from letting their circumstances crowd out their view of God and their circumstances. He wants the other way, he wants to be flipped around. He wants to say, look at God, look at his word that he gave you, look at his faithfulness in your life. Yes, it's not panning out to how you expected it, but God is faithful and he knows that. Why does this matter for Israel and why does it matter for you and me? The same reason. Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament. He was basically the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He was God's last words to his people before he would show up himself. And to the extent that Israel and God's people were disillusioned about their God, there was no way that they were, if they weren't putting trust in him then, there was no way that they were going to put trust when he was standing right before them. So Malachi, in chapter 4, he talks about the great day of the Lord. He points back towards God's promise. He says, for behold, in verse 1, behold, the, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming who shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Malachi makes reference, it's a pretty famous reference to a messenger that's going to come and that messenger is going to precede God coming himself. That messenger he refers to at the end of chapter 4 in verse 5 is Elijah. And if you know your New Testament well, you know that it was John the Baptist who came. He was that messenger that preceded Jesus, God himself. But Malachi's saying, guys, we've been here for thousands of years now. We've seen God's story play out, yet you're still not faithful. And what I fear is that in your circumstances, crowding out your view of God, you're going to have no chance at putting your faith in the one that matters, which would be Jesus. And so the message for Israel is the same for us today, which is, are we looking at our circumstances? Even if you've put your trust in Jesus, are you looking at your circumstances in such a way that they're crowding out your view of God, 
making you disillusioned about your, everything around you, the people around you, but more importantly, about the God you worship. Because if they are, people are going to suffer, just like Malachi was pointing out, then and now. But that's the greatest part about God's word, is that it's, the book we're studying today is just one part of his much bigger story of redemption, which was bringing his people back to himself, that we would have chances. But Malachi understood that these people had been given many chances and yet they still hadn't turned. They still hadn't fully trusted in the Lord because their circumstances were crowding out their view of God. So let it not be said the same thing of us. May we be people that see Malachi's message, that see the story of redemption, to see the faithfulness of God in our own lives and trust him, not flee from him or flee towards self-preserving behavior as we see his faithfulness towards us because he is faithful and he is and can be trusted. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true. It's living and active just as in Malachi's, Malachi's day as it is today. Thank you for your, word, your spirit that convicts us of your word, Lord, and marches in our lives. We thank you so much for what you have done to correct our thinking so that we can come to an ultimate knowledge and more importantly, a relationship with you, our eternal father. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.